Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. On February 2nd of 2014, an essay titled Ashes to Ashes, but first a nice pine box appeared in the New York Times Sunday Review section. It was written by Dr. Jeffrey Healer, and when I read his opinion piece, I, I felt I needed to find him and invite him to be on the program today to provide us with his great insights about accepting mortality and celebrating life. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jeffrey Peeler with me on the line today for today's show. Welcome. Welcome to you too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, Dr. Peeler, you are a retired thoracic surgeon. You live near Kansas City and you wrote about building your own coffin and and how you came to do this. Would you mind explaining uh, to the audience a little bit about your, your situation and what brought you to do this? Sure. Um, I've had, uh, when I was uh, 54 years old, I uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I... Uh, and I'm I'm 66 now, mm-hmm. and I went through the initial evaluation, and I had uh, surgery, and we initially had some hopes that that would take care of it, but the disease uh, recurred, and uh, it basically kept recurring despite uh, radiation therapy, and then multiple. Uh, um, multiple chemotherapy options and immunotherapy and hormone therapy and, you know, all the stuff that you can throw at prostate cancer. And for about the last maybe uh, uh, five, well, four and a half to five years, I've had uh, extensive metastatic disease to my bone. So Mm -hmm. I am uh, a stage four uh, prostate cancer I am categorically incurable, um, although, you know, when one talks about years with stage 4 disease, obviously uh, one has to say, well, things have gone better than, uh, than stage 4 disease treats a lot of other people, and I would be the first to, uh, to admit that. But the, the truth is that, that I'm running uh, out of options, 
and uh, I think that every oncologist that I've been to would be in agreement that uh, I'm I'm getting close to uh, uh, to uh, losing this this uh, this fight that I've had with this disease. Um, so in that in that context, I uh, attended a funeral uh, last summer, and it was a it was a horribly horribly tragic. Uh, a funeral. It was a 19-year-old boy. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a very close friend of, of my daughter's uh, who died uh, of an accidental drug overdose. Mm. And uh, no one knew he was taking drugs. And it was just one of these horrible things. And mm-hmm. I was sitting uh, uh, in the congregation, and he had an open casket. And it was a very plush affair. It looked like it weighed 10 tons, this this, this behemoth of mahogany and cushions, and and the casket was open, and um, and there and there there he was, and um, and I looked at that, and I've done a lot of thinking about my own funeral because I'm sort of a controlling sort of guy, as most surgeons are, and I said, you know, I, I'm I'm just not comfortable in a big mahogany plush. Uh, box like that. So, I, you know, and I, I knew that they were going to cremate this young man, and so obviously he was just, uh, and it was pretty obvious they weren't going to burn up this this box. Uh, and and I, I don't know, there were just too many incongruities for me. Now, l- let me just quickly say that uh, I, I have absolutely no criticism of anyone who makes those decisions to put you know, someone in, in something like that. It's There's nothing more personal than those choices, that, and mm-hmm. I, that's fine. It just wasn't for me. And I looked at that, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of a plain pine box kind of guy. And 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 I and, and, and I kind of thought some more, and I said, you know, the way to kind of come to grips with, with that... Uh, that desire to, to be a little more pure and simple and at the same time to kind of get to grips with the fact that I'm dying would be to make my own box. And um, so that was the germ behind starting this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'd, I'd like to mention is it there is the possibility that that young man's casket was a rental casket. People can do that. And then, oh, I'm sure it um, was. No, no, I'm, I'm sure oh, it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 That, that's what I mean. That's why I know that they weren't going to put that into the flame. Right. Yeah. But, but then what you did write about is very often people are cremated in alternative containers, which are very often recycled cardboard, and you thought you wanted something a little more, um, I don't know, pure or, or just uh, elemental. You and wood. I think that's yeah. I think that's true. I, I even though uh, old pizza containers are, are made of of, uh, of wood at some <laughs> point in their existence, there's something about being part of that recycled process that uh, that didn't really uh, strike me as what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, you know the, the the option of of going back one step, uh, going in the in the chain of of uh, of uh, which I say the, the the chain of production of mm-hmm. of everything that's around us and mm-hmm. bypassing 
the pizza containers and the uh, you know the first draft and the uh, the ice cream containers mm-hmm. and going back all those things that go into recycled material. I thought I'd go back to the very basic, which is the wood that it all came from. Well, and very interesting, in in your essay, you talk about that you actually used recycled wood that I guess used to be in a... Yeah, that is true. You know, I have have absolutely no woodworking skills whatsoever. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I can use my hands, obviously, as as a surgeon. I was pretty comfortable with that, but um, I had no woodworking skills. And so, uh, but I was uh, uh, immediately uh, rescued from that fault by a, a, a good friend who is an artist uh, who works in a, a number of, of different modalities, but especially wood. And so I looked up my, this is my friend Peter here in, in Kansas City, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I spoke with him about the project. And uh, Peter has a, a shop and... Uh, you know, there, we, there, there certainly was no small hurdle, uh, maybe you want to talk about this at some point, no small hurdle getting both his approval and my family's approval for all this. But in his shop, he, he did have some boards, which he had rescued from the demolition uh, of an old factory. And these were, oh, six to eight inches wide, uh, uh, yellow pine, uh, about uh, they're kind of varying thickness, one to two inches thick, and you know they just looked awful. Uh, but he said, he said, Jeff, you scrape off what's on the outside of these, and you will be amazed at what's inside. And it turns out he was right. Mm-hmm. But there certainly was an initial hurdle getting my family uh, on board for this project. Well, and in fact, you start out uh, your column you know, talking about your wife's reaction when, when you informed her after you all have a nice glass of wine and seem relaxed that, that, that you're going to build your own coffin. And it didn't yeah, quite was, go she as... She was absolutely horrified. <laughs> <laughs> well, it made even worse than horrified. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, there was this, this, this sort of this moment of sort of disbelief. And, and then, uh, you know, then why in the world would you want to do that? And, and uh, I'd have to say that when I present this this uh, this concept to other people, they that's pretty much their idea too. Why in the world would you want to do this? But then my, my wife, you know, being a wife, she has the prerogatives of saying, "Stop! Don't do it." <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, you know, I said, "Well, let's we'll just talk about it some other time." And I have to say, I I really did push it too far that that night. It, this wasn't in the article, but I. I I said, uh, I was, you know, this was really pushing my luck. I said, well, and while we're at it, I could have my son, Ben, who is 26 years old. He could come down and help with a little sanding and kind of work on it, too. And that that was the straw that really put her over the edge. I mean, she said, absolutely, no. Um, now, why do, you, and, why do you think she did ahead. that? Well, what? I think, uh, you know, there were two things going on. I, I think that her, you know, for sure, uh, her, um, her reaction uh, was one that, uh, that most people have, was that this is uh, going to channel all my energy into something which is morose, uh, something which is not positive, something 
something which is going to be a constant reminder of death. Um, so I think, and, and that is absolutely the reaction that I've had with most people when I bring this up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I think but when, in, I, when I threw in, my son into the mix, um, that's, that's maybe a, a little more complicated in that um, I, I think that we wanted to, to maybe protect uh, my two youngest children, age 26 and 24, maybe protect them uh, a little bit. They're, they're yeah. both a little more vulnerable, and we thought maybe they should kind of get into this pretty slowly Jeff, and not so abruptly. Yeah. Jeff, we're, we're going to take a little quick break here, but we'll continue sure. the conversation when we come back. Okay. Thanks. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505 205- Two six five seven two one five. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Peeler, who wrote a really interesting essay in the New York Times that ran on February second about building his own coffin for his eventual demise, which you had uh, written because you are a. Um, uh, retired thoracic surgeon, as they say in meta, in medical speak, you're you're beginning getting close to circling the drain or something along those lines. That's it, circling the drain. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I love your your honest approach to mortality and the fact that you wanted to be involved in this project, and yet the reaction of family and friends is like, oh, that's so morbid, yet it sounds like you found it to be very life-affirming. I think I, absolutely. Um, no, this was a project that, uh, it, well, let me just say, it was, it was never a, a, a woodworking project. It was never a couple of guys getting together, drinking beer, or making something out of wood. Um, we knew from, Peter and I knew from the outset that, that this was something different, that we were making, um, you know, something that had a, a deep um, meaning and was making a statement. And it, it's hard to be totally trivial, although, you know, we had many, many light moments and we did drink a lot of beer. Um, <laughs> but we, it, it's, it's hard to be totally trivial when you're laying on the floor and someone's making an outline of your body with a pencil to see how big a piece of wood you need underneath you uh, in your coffin. And um, it's a very sobering uh, process. But as it turned out, um, 
you know, we, we, we did indeed start out with the idea that, uh, you know, we were building this. But at some point, it became apparent and without words to both of us that really the coffin was building us. And it continued to do that and actually continues to do that. And, and I think that if I have time to, to talk to people about it, um, then, then the people sort of pause and, and, and there I get a little look of, oh, well, okay. And that was the point behind the article was people are so terrified to, to talk about dying. And, um, the, what I have found is that by building this, this box, I've, it's, it's sort of a green light for for me to think about my death um, in terms, in, in, in positive terms, and also it's a green light for others uh, to feel at ease to, to talk about it with me. And both of those um, arenas have been immensely profitable to me in terms of how I view death and how comfortable I am in accepting the fact that I'm going to die and I don't. I don't know when I'm going to die, but it's not going to be too terribly long from now. Mm-hmm. One of the sentences that you wrote was, "While the coffin is indeed a reminder of what awaits us all, its true message is to live every moment in its greatest potential." I think that. And, I think that summarizes it. Um, and you know, people people talk about you know, the fight against cancer. And, and, you know, I don't know how many of your audience have, are dealing with cancer or who have dealt with cancer, but, you know, really, uh, there's, a, there's I, I think most people with cancer sort of resent that term because you really don't feel like you're fighting. Uh, you know, this is something that you really have no control over. And this idea of fighting is, is, is not a good one. And... Uh, you know, you're doing the best you can. And um, the idea that, that, that you know, that, that, that the coffin is somehow a, 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 a resigning yourself to the fact that, that you're giving up this, this, this desire to live is, is exactly the op- is opposite of the truth. Um, I found that by just knowing that this box is there, I have you know, a, a concrete reminder of, you know, the most elemental of all human conditions besides birth, and that's death. And it's going to happen, and it's going to happen to everyone listening. And you know, I guess even those not listening. <laughs> and, <laughs> they can listen later on the podcast. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, I mean, I think that the oblig- if, you know, the, the obligation is, is not to get all bound up in the fact that, you know, we're going to die and bury your head from living. It's really quite the opposite. What you need to do is to accept that and then make the very best of every moment that you have. And for me, that's what this project has done, and that's what the box does. It's a very, it's not only a symbol um, of, of that, and that's not defiant at all. It's just acknowledging the fact. 
but it's a it's sort of a gentle reminder to me that every day deserves uh, your your very best, and that includes seeing the miracles that are out there all around you every day, and it includes being a better person every day, and it includes being incredibly grateful for what you have, and that's what the box tells me, and that's what the process of making it imparted on. Mm-hmm. And it gave you perspective, too. You you wrote that it, it's pretty much impossible to feel anger at someone for driving too slowly in front of you in traffic when you've just come from sanding your own coffin. Uh, that is certainly true. That is certainly <laughs> true. Uh, pretty much everything falls in the line when, <laughs> when you're, you know, and that's what you're doing uh, with your in your spare time. Uh, you know, just the... You know, I think uh, just going a little deeper into that, I mean, I think that, you know, all of us are, are born pretty pure and we're issued a knapsack at some early time of our life and we start adding bricks to that knapsack as we go through life, you know, and the bricks are not all good, you know, a lot of them are, you know, short temperedness and anger and materialism and, uh, jealousy and holding grudges and, you know, all these bad things that we all kind of carry around with us. And if you do the one simple thing, well, maybe it's not so simple, I don't know, but <laughs> it, it, it has, it's come around to be simple for me, which is to just accept the fact that you're going to die. Then all of a sudden, it's like, uh, you know, the, there's, there's a hand coming in there and just unloading those bricks just as fast as they have ever been put in there. And you, you find that you view life in a totally different way. Um, you see grace in strangers. You, you know, when I go out to pick up my newspaper in the morning, I go to the end of the driveway, stop, and I, you know, I listen to two cardinals talking to each other, and I'm just absolutely mesmerized at the beauty of that communication between those two birds. And I wave at people driving by on their way to work, and, you know, I see, I see beauty in the smiles. I, it's a very different way to live, and I think it's sort of the default position of man, and unfortunately, you can't quite get there until you accept the fact that you're going to die. You don't have to be actually, you know, have terminal cancer, but mm-hmm. our society doesn't want to take that, that, that step, that step of saying, yep, this is what's going to happen, and then, then I need to kind of put my life in order, taking that into account. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think if you do that, so much of human behavior is absolute folly, you know, acquiring things and all this. I mean, it's... It's, it's so foolish. And, you know, really what's important, I mean, really, when you get down to it, are human relationships. I mean, it's, it's all loving family, loving friends, and this whole process has, has brought me so much closer to my, to my family. Um, and uh, I've, I've found friends, including, especially including Peter, but others too, that I never dreamt that I would have uh, uh, of this quality 
my life. And all I've done is accept the obvious, that I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and do the family and friends, have they adjusted and kind of incorporated that attitude as well? Well, it's, you know, everyone has to kind of work their own way along this trail. Um, and it's fair to say we don't all go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been many times where I was, well, I, I think it's fair to say I've always been further along the trail than my than other members of my family. Um, and but I, that's perhaps the way it's going to be. I mean, they're 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 going to lose me, and um, you know they're going to have to do in many ways more of the hard work of grieving, uh, and they're going to do more hard work than I am. I just got to lay there and let it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's fair to say that that, that, that they have been not as uh, in in uh, always in the same place that I am. On the other mm-hmm. hand, um, my wife and I are we we talk all the time about when I'm not here, mm-hmm. and you know we've done all the obvious things which everyone should do. You know the things like uh, you know wills and make sure that things are titled right and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which I'm, I'm sure this audience is very familiar with. Well, I'm always um, harping about that. Um, and yeah, well, fact, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of a given here. And, yeah, um, but we and need then, to take a little break at this okay. point. I'm sorry. But when we come back, we'll continue the conversation and talk okay. about how, what you and your wife are talking about, um, you know, when you are not here anymore. Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, learn how to save money, reduce family conflict, and minimize stress at a time of grief. Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the Bucket List, 100 Downsizing and Organizing Things to Do Before You Die brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And Hail and Farewell Cremation Ceremonies, Templates and Tips helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Thanks for listening. This is part one of our two-part episode. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com.